Good evening, this is Dr. Dan Guerra. I come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the most beautiful United States of America. Today is the second day of December uh, and the year is 2020. So let's get started with our Authentic Biochemistry podcast today. And I'm doing this because I have, of course, nothing better to do. So what I want to do today is go way, way back into the true vestibule, the the true beginning and basic structure of biochemistry. I want to talk to you about the fundamentals of bioenergetics. And we're going to lead from that pretty quickly into how bioenergetics uh, is compromised in aging. And from that, I'm going to step into what goes on with the bioenergetic systems of developing T lymphocytes all of with the understanding that we're moving towards this discussion of the immune system in the aging human. So this is very basic, so uh, please bear with me. But remember that you have ATP, NADH, and NADPH. And that each of those nucleotides are used for anabolic processes, such as the synthesis of macromolecules, which, which include DNA, RNA, protein, and lipids. But those same three nucleotides are also used for muscle contraction. Of course, the active ion transport gradients that move uh, and cause electrochemical potentials across membranes, and even thermogenesis. Once those processes, and thousands more like it, those would be physiological events, um, have utilized ATP, NADH, and ADPH, you end up with ADP, NAD+, which means that's oxidized, and NADP, which is oxidized. Then, in the process of catabolism, where carbohydrates, lipid, and protein are degraded ultimately to carbon dioxide and water and ammonia, and ammonia, of course, is going to be used to make urea, there's a resynthesis of ATP, NADH, and ADPH. It's a very basic foundation then of metabolism that I want you to keep in mind. So, you know, you have high energy bonds in ATP and those high energy bonds then are going to be used to drive anabolic processes. And you also realize that um, NADPH is the biological reductant for biosynthesis. So you take NADPH and make NADP plus and that will take an oxidized precursor and make it a reduced product, such as taking acetyl-CoA and turning it into palmitic acid. NADP then can take a reduced substrate and make it oxidized and then thus become reduced and then NADPH is replenished. The bottom uh, part of that pathway, the initial one I talked about is anabolism and the top part is catabolism, of course. And there are various kinds of metabolic pathways that are going to carry out that process. We know that there is going to be a large free energy change for any of the metabolites that we use to drive NADPH, NADH, and ATP synthesis. Some of those include glucose, which has a a negative delta kilojoule per mole of about 2,864. Whereas tripalmitic acid, which is a triacylglycerol, will give you a whopping 31,772 kilojoule per mole. 
Uh, and then intermediate to that uh, is just straight palmitic acid. And of course, much less than that is lactic acid. Now, why am I bringing up these metabolites? Because those are key metabolites in dealing with either a shift from glycolysis, um, which basically just uses glucose and produces pyruvic acid and lactic acid, or glycolysis then linked to the TCA cycle, which would then generate a great deal more reducing power, which ultimately will be used in the electron transport chain to make more ATP. The fatty acid beta oxidation, however, will directly make NADH and FADH2, which can be reoxidized on the ETC in the electron transport chain, and then dri driven via chemiosmotic proton pumping gradient through the uh, proton pumping ATPase in the inner mitochondrial membrane, and then it's in the matrix, you will synthesize ATP from ADP and PI. So I'm giving you then a flavor for how bioenergetics work just in just in that rough sketch that uh, I'm sure you're remembering from basic biology even, not even biochemistry. Now, so a really important enzyme in this process is going to be a feature of today's lecture, and it's the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. Now, that's the one that's found in mammals, okay? So there are some unique aspects of it um, that make it differ from, say, from plants or from um, prokaryotic organisms like bacteria. But in mammals, pyruvate dehydrogenase consists itself of about between 20 and 30 subunits. It has a prosthetic group called thiamine pyrophosphate, and that enzymatic activity of the PDH complex actually carries out the oxidative decarboxylation of pyruvate. Another important enzyme that is embedded in the PDH complex is the hydrolipoyl transase acetylase. There are a full 60 subunits of that uh, protein in the DA, uh, PDH complex. And of course, the prosthetic group for that enzyme is lipoamide. And what that does is transfer the acetyl group to the active uh, thioester coenzyme A. The third enzymatic activity in PDH is the hydrolipoyl dehydrogenase. That is only six subunit uh, showing up in the PDH complex, and it uses as its prosthetic group, of course, oxidized FAD, that's flavin adenine dinucleotide. And what that reaction does is regenerate the oxidized forms of lipoamide, and then in so doing, it transfers the electrons to NAD, thus making NADH. Again, just basic um, biochemical pathways, okay? So from that, I want to move up a little bit further. I'm not going to talk about the, the uh, electron transport chain today, although we will. I'm going to go back again to this uh, 30,000 foot level and tell you that glycogen is broken down by glycogenolysis to glucose. Glucose is then converted to pyruvic acid via glycolysis, which is non-oxygen requiring. But then pyruvate is oxidized to acetyl-CoA via that pyruvate dehydrogenase I just told you. The triacylglycerol goes through an enzymatic pathway known as lipolysis via lipase activity to make free fatty acid, reesterified to CoA and then the carnitine, and then carried out through the process of beta-oxidation uh, in the mitochondria to make acetyl-CoA, and in so doing, NADH and FADH2. And finally, protein is 
uh, catabolized by proteolysis, limited proteolysis, both exo and endoproteolytic reactions, making ultimately though free amino acids. Those amino acids are then deaminated and oxidized again, some of them anyway, directly to acetyl-CoA. So acetyl-CoA is a really important intermediate in all the system. So again, taking from glucose to pyruvate is glycolysis. Pyruvate can be transaminated, however, to alanine. It can be carboxylated to oxaloacetic acid, which is an important, um, important intermediate in the tricarboxylic acid cycle. It can also be oxidative decarboxylated, like I just told you, to acetyl-CoA. And finally, pyruvate can be reduced to lactic acid, such as in the muscle in the quarry cycle, right? So I'm sure you're kind of aware of most of those pathways, or at least it's starting to uh, get a little bit less foggy as I bring them up to you. Of course, the TCA cycle is really important because it's going to take acetyl-CoA, condense it with oxaloacetic acid, and then that reaction is called citrate synthesis. It's going to make citrate. Citrate will be converted to um, isocitrate via the cisaconitate intermediate, and that enzymatic reaction is the conitase. Um, the isocitrate dehydrogenase is the first place you make NADH, of course, uh, and that the product of that would be oxalosuccinate. Once it's decarboxylated, it will make, of course, alpha-ketoglutarate. Uh, that's all of the isocitrate dehydrogenase mitochondrial isoform. Then the reaction carried out by alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase is where you're going to make a thioester in the TCA cycle. This is going to be succinyl-CoA. So you're going to decarboxylate, and at the same time, you're going to reduce NAD to NADH because it is a dehydrogenase, but also you're going to uh, sterify, make a thioester, to the uh, succinate, to that uh, base carbonyl. Succinyl-CoA then will be uh, uh, converted to succinic acid via succinyl-CoA synthetase. That's going to make uh, substrate level GTP. Uh, and of course, GTP can be converted to ATP just by uh, dinucleotide uh, transferase reactions. But it, GTP is also used, of course, in uh, G protein coupled receptors, and that's a whole other pathway that, I, that I've talked about at great length. We don't need to talk about it here. Succinate then will go through succinate dehydrogenase that has enough reducing power to make up a DH2, not an NDH. Then you make fumarate. Fumarate then through the reaction fumarates will make malic acid, and malic acid through the final dehydrogenase, that's malate dehydrogenase, resynthesizing oxaloacetic acid. And then that OAA, the new OAA synthesis can be once again, condensed with a new mole of acetyl-CoA. And there's your TCA cycle in one minute, okay? So keep in mind that the citric acid cycle is going to make two carbon dioxides per run of acetyl-CoA. And acetyl-CoA can be synthesized from fatty acids, from glucose, and from some amino acids. You're going to make two CO2s. You're going to make eight electrons. You're going to make one GTP. Those eight electrons are going to move through the electron transport chain that's via the synthesis, of course, of NADH and FADH2. And the electron transport chain is going to take molecular oxygen in the aerobic system of the human and convert it to water, so two O2s to four waters, so the full, full final reduction of molecular oxygen to water. That's going to run through the proton gradient. You'll get about 36 protons from that entire redox system, and that's enough to make um, a 3 ATP per mole of NADH and 2 ATP per mole of FADH2. All that going down the intermitochondrial membrane and then flexing back through the matrix. Okay. So again, 
the kinds of things that we've talked about multiple times. So pyruvate, again, with acetyl-CoA, acetyl-CoA, uh, ultimately through the TCA cycle. Now, let's talk a little bit about pyruvate dehydrogenase enzyme. So again, the first reaction is carried out by the enzyme known as pyruvate dehydrogenase. It's going to take thiamine pyrophosphate and make hydroxyethyl TPP. And then the process, it'll take pyruvate and, and also make a mole of carbon dioxide, right? The next reaction will take hydroxyethyl TPP and react it with lipoamide, which is a disulfide, um, again, prosthetic group within the enzyme dihydrolipoyl transacetylase, also known as E2 in the PDH system. And the product of that, of course, is going to be acetyl dihydrolipoamide. Dihydrolipoamide will then transfer that acetate to coenzyme A, and you're going to form then acetyl-CoA, and you're going to make now the reduced form of lipoamide. That reduced form then is going to react with an FAD-linked disulfide with enzyme number four called dihydrolipoyl dehydrogenase. That when I say four, I mean the activity of. It's also just simply known as enzyme three in the PDH complex. That's going to resynthesize the oxidized form of lipoamide for another round of that next react of that reaction, the dihydrolipoyl transacetylase. But it's also going to end up with the self, two sulfhydryl groups, two reduced forms of sulfur on the backbone of an FAD. And then that is going to react with NAD to ultimately make NADH. And that's going to oxidize those two SH groups back to the disulfide. And that is basically the brass tacks of the PDH reaction. Now, let's move on from there and talk about how this fits into aging. Okay, this is the really important thing that I want to bring into play here because it's where we want to be in our uh, discussion. So ultimately, what this lecture could be called is immune cell signaling and metabolism and aging. I gave you all that pro forma just so you remember where pyruvate dehydrogenase fits in. So let's just jump right into uh, this new aspect. This is a paper published in PLOS One, 2013. It's volume eight. It's E number 65532. I'll put it in the show notes. What does this tell us? Okay, so let's do some clinical biology and some clinical biochemistry here. So subclinical hypothyroidism obtains an increased serum thyrotropin. Now that thyrotropin is also known as, of course, thyroid stimulating hormone or TSH. And it gives you flat levels of free thyroxin, which is also known as T4. And it also gives you biologically active free triiodothyronine, which is T3. So this happens especially in elderly people. Okay. So increased thyrotropin flat levels of free thyroxin and flat levels of triiodothyronine, okay? Now, so that means it's just something going on with the thyroid hormone as you age. That's what basically does take home message there. So thyroxin, remember, okay, now that, that's the hormone itself. That's the T4. Thyroxin replacement improves measure of cardiac function and thyroid hormone, of course, regulates excitation, contraction, and transport of sarcoplasmic reticulum calcium ATPase, protein also known as CIRCA-2. 
and also the alpha-myosin heavy chain. So beta-1 adrenergic receptors, sodium-potassium ATPases, voltage-gated potassium channels, malic enzyme, and the atrial and brain natriuretic factor or peptide all respond favorably to thyroxin, all moving towards that direction. All those proteins form the primary architecture of the cardiomyocyte, of course, basic physiology, and they determine their relative poise and activity, uh, determine contractile strength. So, of course, ATP is driving the muscle contraction relaxation, so mitochondrial carbon biofuel oxidation is going to be essential, right? So we already are quite aware of that. Now, some important observations include that the senescent heart fails to shut down glucose oxidation when supplied with oleic acid. So that's curious. Why won't it be able to use fatty acid as a biofuel when we know that fatty acids are a major source of biofuel for the cardiac muscle? Well, the group that published this paper in 2013 investigated oxidative metabolism in the aged mouse heart, and they used perfused glucose, lactate, ketones, such as acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate, and of course, free fatty acid. The ketone and fatty acid oxidation decreased with aging, as is normally expected, while glucose oxidation reciprocally increases with aging. So thyroid hormone levels were, of course, reduced in those aged mice, just like we find in humans. So that suggests a connection, such as the myocardial metabolic pathology could be linked, phenomenologically at least, to subclinical hypothyroidism. This is the way science works. You couple things, you couple phenomena together, and you try to understand how they work as a network in a biochemical system, right? So that means, this is a conjecture, but it, it's pretty much been shown by this paper and a lot of other papers since then, thyroid hormone homeostasis dysfunction is, of course, linked at some level to cardiomyopathy of aging. You see, so that's why I gave you the little... Um, prolegomena lesson about bioenergetics because you need to have that all in mind for you to be following along what we're going to be doing now, what we've been doing. So you can ask a couple of questions from those from those um, observations I just mentioned to you. One question is, does the senescing thyroid hormone homeostasis in aging heart contribute directly to cardiac dysfunction? And does thyroid hormone treatment actually alter oxidative metabolism? And could that improve myocardial response to aging in humans? Aging, of course, shows impaired fatty acid utilization and oxidation. This is well known. The aged heart, in fact, exhibits reduced diastolic function. And that is apparently only when you have stressed a stress system. And that suggests, of course, that the diastolic relaxation abnormalities may associate cardiac dysfunction in the aging human heart. Now, that would mean overall TCA flux decreases with aging, primarily due to a reduced palmitate flux, linking NADH, of course, because that's where you're going to get the NADH from beta-oxidation of fatty acids, um, and linking NADH directly to the electron transport chain, as we know. So lower NADH suggests tanking ATP synthesis, contributing then to abnormal diastolic function with aging. So now this is just straightforward. 
biochemistry, bi uh, biochemical physiology. Now, studies show that thyroid hormone deficiency in aged mice inhibits fatty acid oxidation through a transcriptionally mediated downregulation of the transcription factor itself, PPAR alpha, right? Proxyproliferator, uh, proliferator acceptor um, uh, uh, receptor alpha, okay? That's PPAR alpha, PPAR alpha, excuse me. Now, where that transcription factor functions normally it's just, it does many things like turn on all the beta oxidation genes, but it also suppresses pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase 4. So if you suppress PDK4, you actually get increased pyruvate dehydrogenase activity, which would allow you then to make acetyl-CoA and then be more oxidative and not simply run anaerobic glycolysis for heart. You see? So... What it means is that the TCA is totally dependent upon glycolysis first in the aging heart. That's what this suggests. Now, thyroid hormone supplementation could improve cardiac function, possibly, through multiple mechanisms, not just this one. And that includes changes in the excitation, contraction, and transport proteins, along with the increase that we're suggesting for beta oxidation of fatty acids, right? So, aging causes... We can make a summary here. A decrease in fatty acid oxidation, which is associated with mildly reduced cardiac function at high afterload. The aged heart uniformly increases utilization of lactic acid, glucose, and then pyruvate in place of the fatty acids. Thyroid hormone supplementation actually increases fatty acid oxidation. It also improves, me improves measures of cardiac function. So these results might suggest an important metabolic effect of thyroid hormone supplementation in aging, which it would impossibly improve functional capacity at high workload, okay? So this is where you get bio, a simple biochemical studies done in rodent models to be able to formulate hypotheses for the uh, human system, particularly in the aging process, right? So this is what we're talking about here. All right, so just wanna make sure that you're on track with where we're going, because here's the next paper. This is from the International Journal of Molecular Science. This is a brand new paper. In fact, it won't come into uh, electronic uh, publication until November, or actually it came in in November, so it just came in. So published in 2020, late November, and so just recently, a day or two old. And uh, that's volume 21, and the number on that is 7972. Again, International Journal of Molecular Science, I will post this in the show notes. What is this paper doing now? Okay, so now we're moving from basic heart function discussed before that uh, aerobic and anaerobic metabolism, the utilization of various carbon sources to drive contraction in the heart muscle, how thyroid hormone deficiency switches from beta oxidation to glucose utilization without recovery of the whole system involved in generating acetyl-CoA to run the TCA cycle. So the level of ATP declines. And so heart failure is more common in the elderly. You see where I'm going here. So keep all of that in your mind. And now from this paper, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to introduce the immune system now because the immune system is intimately linked to aging, T-cell development undergoes a processive proliferation 
and selection in the thymus, as we know. And by that, I mean initially double negative, that's CD4 negative, CD8 negative. We call that DN thymocytes. Those DN thymocytes homologous recombine the VDJ genomic segments of the T cell receptor, that's the TCR, beta chain locus. Okay, so what's going on in the early stages of making in these double negative thymocytes. After that recombinational rearrangement, double, double negative thymocytes perform what's known as beta selection, and they move ultimately through uh, double negative stage three and double negative stage four. And while they move through those various stages, they experience expansion and proliferation, these now becoming T lymphocytes, and these cellular transitions, of course, are bioenergetically supplied via induction of the glucose transporter GLUT1 and what? Straight up increased glycolysis. Now, GLUT1 is down, that's a glucose transporter in, in the heart, uh, I mean, in the lymphocytes. GLUT1 is downregulated as the cells mature to a more quiescent mid-stage, which are going to be the double positives. That's CD4 positive, CD8 positive, or DPs. From there, you're going to make CD4 positive, CD8 minus, and CD4 minus, CD8 positive. Those are known as single positive cells. And you know that their lineage is going to go with T helper cells or with things, or with a CD8 lineage, right? Uh, which are all going to be proactive T lymphocytes. Now, of course, with the CD4 lineage, you're also going to make T regulatory cells, which will control everything um, by suppressing the immune response, the pro-inflammatory response in specific. So now, final thing is that complex metabolic networking is obtained with the expense of massive bioenergetic streams, and that's going to be unique to each transition through that thymocyte development, okay? So that's a really important thing. Bioenergetics is going to switch during thymocyte development. And you know that aging has a lot of T memory cells, but lot, not a lot of naive CD4 positive or CD8 positive, the single uh, positive cells, right? The monopositive cells, which are more inclined to be able to deal with infection, right? But because you're poised, with a lot of T memory cells and a lot of T reg suppression, when there is an induction of the immune response, you go from having a hypoimmune activity in an aging population to a hyperimmune induction. And then that can flood the system with pro-inflammatory cytokines, inducing then uh, a very deadly or at least highly high morbidity because of all the inflammation that ensues and then indu that induces, of course, programmed cell death, right? So that's why the poise in the elderly is switched around. Now I'm giving you how that occurs via a discussion of the bioenergetics, okay? That's the only thing you need to really understand about the process I'm telling you at this particular stage. Now, a couple more things we'll stop today. Notch signaling, okay, is going to be important here. Notch signaling is going to be important here. How, Okay. It's going to play a significant role in thymocyte development. Mice with an inducible knockout of NOTCH1, for example, shows a developmental block of immature thymocytes at a CD25 minus CD44 positive 
DN double negative stage, okay? Constitutive expression of NOTCH1 in these hemopoietic stem cells, HSCs, actually blocks B cell differentiation, but of course it turns on ectopic development of the immature double positive T cells all going down in the bone marrow. So apart from the hematopoietic stem cell differentiation towards the T cell lineage, notch signaling also drives beta selection that we just went through of the double negative thymocytes. So double negative thymocytes atrophy without notch signaling, they show a drop in GLUT1 expression and a concomitant tanking of glycolysis, eventually leading to program cell death. Now you see how that is diametrically opposed to what's going on in the heart muscle, right? Where you're getting an increase in glycolysis uh, and a decrease in fatty acid oxidation. So the opposite is actually going on during the development of these thymocytes. So that's what I wanted to leave you with today. So you understand why a metabolic pathway in one cell system in the aging population can be contrarian to another age-specific and stage-specific dysregulation, therefore pathobiochemical response, in another tissue system. And those two are going to be right now where we're going to really hit home between the heart and the thymocytes, right? And particularly developing T lymphocytes. So we're going to stop there and we're going to come back to you real soon with part two. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios saying bye for now.